Here's the thing. I thought before the election, I thought that I was going to be writing dad jokes about Tim Kaine. <laughs> Welcome to Midlife Mixtape, the podcast. I'm Nancy Davis Coe, and we're here to talk about the years between being hip and breaking one. Where do I belong? Tell me why I'm here and what's taking this long. When can I move on? I want to thank everyone who's reached out to ask how they can help support the victims of the fires here in Northern California. Here in Oakland, we're about 160 miles away from the devastation in Butte County. And even here, the smoke has been absolutely awful for a week. So it doesn't take a lot of imagination to picture what's happening up there. If you do feel called to help, here are a couple of organizations to which I've been directing people. There's the Wildlife Relief Fund of the California Community Foundation, the California Fire Foundation, which helps firefighters and their families, and the UC Davis Veterinary Catastrophic Need Fund, which helps animals impacted by the fire. And of course, the Red Cross is always a good choice. So you can Google those. I'll leave links to those organizations on the show notes page. And I just want to say thanks again for your thoughts and prayers about my beloved Golden State. Hey, everybody, it's Nancy Davis Co here, and I want to wish you a very happy Thanksgiving week. I hope your turkey is brining, if not literally, then metaphorically. And I hope that you have plenty of whipped cream in your plans for this week. If not on your pie, then somewhere. When I count my Thanksgiving blessings later this week, the fact that you guys still tune in to every episode will rank heavily among them. So thank you very much for listening. Today's guest is R. Eric Thomas. R. Eric Thomas is a playwright, the long-running host of The Moth in Philadelphia and D.C., and he's a senior staff writer for L.com, where he writes Eric Reads the News, a daily current events and culture column. Eric won the 2016 Barrymore Award for Best New Play and the 2018 Dramatist Guild Lanford Wilson Award. He's also the recipient of a 2017-2018 National New Play Network Commission and is at work on his debut memoir in essays entitled Here For It, which will be published by Ballantine Books. R. Eric, who goes by Eric in real life, writes a daily column that is the humor tonic that has allowed me to get through the last two years of presidential insanity, and I hope you're here for it too. So I'm here today with Eric Thomas of the internet. Hey, Eric, welcome <laughs> to the program. Hi, I'm so excited to be on uh, on this program. Now, I feel like I need to start this off right, right off the bat and say I am really bending the rules on the definition of midlife here because you are at best midlife adjacent. And I, I, I will take it. <laughs> I don't want to give you a complex, but honestly, I was like, I think I could get him on the show and I don't care if he's too young. I'm still going to invite him on. So there you go. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And you know, it's, I, I consider, I keep saying that I'm in midlife and my husband gets annoyed about that. I'm like, no, I'm just going to own it. I'm going to live into that phase of life. Well, I'm telling you, there's a lot to love about it. So he, you, I think your impulse is good. I don't think you should be afeard of it. That's what I'm saying. Excellent. Good. So we always start the Midlife Mixtape podcast with one question. What was your first concert and what were the circumstances? My first concert was Bette Midler, um, which is a very typical first concert for somebody of uh, my age group, I know. <laughs> I uh, I was 13 years old, and when I was little, I would go to the, well, actually around you know, you know, 10, 11, 12, I would go to the library like two or three times a week, and I would always borrow a bunch of books, and then I would only borrow 
two cassettes, and it was the soundtrack to Dick Tracy. Um, uh, another <laughs> Madonna, popular Madonna hit, version? yeah, the Madonna album, <laughs> and um, the soundtrack to Beaches. And it's amazing that anyone was surprised when I came out um, much later. <laughs> So I was a huge Bette Midler fan, and my mother knew that, so she bought us tickets to go see uh, her in concert. And we were uh, at the Civic Center in Baltimore, um, which is now the Royal Farms Arena, Mm -hmm. and we were sitting up on like the second or third level. I I imagine it must have been like quite a big sacrifice for my mother. We didn't have a a whole lot of money, my family, growing up. Well, at one point, Bette Midler rides this like merry-go-round horse like through like up in the air uh, like and like a little bit like over the crowd it wasn't like a Katy perry show but it was like it was pretty impressive and i like lost my mind <laughs> and at another point bet midler you know she's just talking and she's like where's my gaze at and um you know this group down right down front of course like screams and i was you know, I wasn't I wasn't out to myself or to really anybody else, and I had sort of a conservative upbringing, and so I was like, "Gays, there's gays at a Bette Midler concert? Oh, this is too much for me! Oh gosh, I was really shocked." So it was. <laughs> my god that's classic did you were you also like well maybe i should go sit down there and i you know there (laughs) i i did have it it piqued a lot of my curiosity i was like hmm where do they hang out and what do they do for fun and i was like i guess they go to bet miller concert so and and i have to ask with the with the flying uh carousel horse what do you think that had an influence on what became your job which is that you are a playwright uh i mean is the theatricality there did it play a part yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, and Bet's whole show is about like sort of bringing back this sort of vaudevillian spirit, and and then mixing it with like concert theatricality. And you know, she started off uh, doing shows in bathhouses, and like you really have to be able to command a room right. to to win over a crowd in a bathhouse. So uh, yeah, I think her her flair for the dramatic really continues to inf- to influence me and the things that I write and the things that I try and put on stage. All right, so your so your day job is a playwright, and you've written award winning plays like Time Is on Our Side. You won the Barrymore Award for that, which recognizes mm-hmm. theatrical excellence in the Greater Philadelphia region. And you premiered one in 2018 called Mrs. Harrison. So you're cooking along with your playwriting, and then suddenly you are our go-to current events source on the internet. And I have to tell you that my friend Lori refers to you as the Dan Rather of internet comedy. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I will take that. (laughs) She also says you are the only person on the internet she doesn't hate. So so if you guys are not familiar with Eric's writing for L.com, it is a phenomenal daily column where he takes on current events. And just just to give you a typical headline from the day before yesterday when Jeff Sessions quit, Eric wrote a piece called, It is my honor to quit because you are firing me. And yesterday he, he wrote, Georgia Town, we're not racist, we just love the Cheesecake Factory. And you managed to weave a reference to Jan Brady, The Office, and Golden Girls into that piece. So <laughs> you are doing this amazing difficult task of making the very challenging times in which we live funny, but also, you know, you're kind of interpreting for us. So tell me how a playwright becomes our current news source. 
You know, it is the strangest story. And I feel like when I tell, you know, my children about how they should go about planning their careers, they won't ever, you know, take any advice from me because everything has sort of fallen into my lap. Also because they're your children. So that's, that's by design. They will never listen to anything <laughs> right. you say. I'm, I am sure. Yeah, I I was working in uh, in theater, and, and you know, as as you may be aware, like there are maybe four people who make a living off of making theater. You know, right. Lin Manuel Miranda, and uh, you know, a couple others. And um, so I wasn't. I was also working for a nonprofit. And one of the things that I liked to do in my spare time was engage in social media. I do think the internet is a terrible place, but I also really like that I can connect with, uh, you, you know, friends and, and strangers um, over the internet. And so I'll just like post random things on Facebook and, and occasionally on Twitter here and there, um, mostly live tweeting award shows. But I wrote a post about this photo of Barack Obama, um, Justin Trudeau, and, and Enrique Peña Nieto, uh, the president of Mexico. Um, and it was just about it was really a, a post about how hot they were in this one photo. I was going to say um, snack, snack, snack. Exactly, exactly. It was a snack attack. It was a vending machine. <laughs> is what that. That's what it was. And it was just like you know a ridiculous thing. I was like, oh, lol. My friends will enjoy this, and it went super viral. Like something like 75,000 75, likes and sixteen thousand shares on Facebook. And so my editor like reached out to me or the, the site director of, of L.com, and she was like, do you want to do this every day? And I was like, this is not a job. This is me <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, yes, yelling I do. on the internet. <laughs> right. And, uh, and so we, I started off freelancing and contributing things, and it really just sort of bloomed from there. What I love about it is that they do let me write kind of whatever I want, and they let me speak with a, a voice that mixes references to like uh, old TV shows that I like and to movies, and I use a lot of vernacular that is common to the communities that I'm a part of, African-American vernacular English, and like slang that's popular in, in gay and drag communities, and mix it all up, and it reaches a wide swath of people. It's not just like people who are just like me are identifying with what I'm writing or saying. It's, you know, it's people like you, it's people all around the country. And I think that's one of the real magical things about the internet and the way that we talk on the internet. And you can, you can learn a whole bunch of different languages and have a bunch of different conversations at once. So what does your pop culture intake timeline look like? Because you seem to know every reference to everything. And I'm wondering if you are constantly <laughs> plugged in, like how, what does your day look like when you're deciding what you're going to write about and how you're going to weave in all these disparate threads? I'm just a fan of just a lot of things. And I grew up pretty sheltered. I wasn't allowed to watch I wasn't allowed to watch anything but public television until I was maybe twelve or thirteen. And then I went right from public television to like Bette Midler concerts. So there's like huge gaps in what I know. I do try and like I'm on Twitter all the time, which is the worst possible place and the worst thing to do uh, with my life, but I, it's what I'm doing right now. It's work. Yeah, it's work. Yeah, it's and work. so I pick up on a lot of conversations and, you know, I follow a lot of journalists who have a lot more access than I do. And so I, you know, I, I read about movies that are coming out and and uh, books that are coming out. Uh, but I think a lot of it is like a lot of the references I feel like come out of this place of the surprise of identification. Like you mentioned the Shore Jan meme, which is, you know, pretty prevalent. Um, and, and this is seen from the Brady Bunch where uh, Jan is telling 
Marsha something, I think, about her boyfriend, George Glass. And Marsha just, like, <laughs> smirks and says, sure, Jan. And it's become a meme, I think, because it's sort of, it can be universally applied. And it also, like, gives people a sense of nostalgia. I don't think I've ever seen that episode, though. Like, I could not tell you. So it's sort of, I think there's a lot of pop culture osmosis that, that everybody does. You know, you sort of heard it, you hear something, and then you kind of get the gist and then you run with it. Right. How long does it take you to write a column? I try to, I'm like, I'm real, I feel like I'm racing pretty much every other blogging aggregate site out there. So I, I, I try to get things done in about an hour or so. I think five, six, eight hundred words in, in an hour. Sometimes if a story is suspicious and I have to like double check and make sure I'm not like, you know, libeling someone. Right. I'll, I'll take the time it takes, but usually I'm just trying to like bang it out in 30, 30, 40 minutes and then get it edited and thrown up on the internet. You know, one of the things people said after the 2016 election was that, you know, oh, it's going to be a renaissance in music and art and writing because this always, this kind of thing always really gooses the creative types in our lives to to do their best work. And I was like, you know what? I was fine with the art and the music mm-hmm. of the Obama era. <laughs> I was not missing mm-hmm. anything. But then I read your work and I'm like, damn it, maybe they were right. He's right. like, he's <laughs> so super funny. And I'm not sure. Could you have written? I mean, what would it have looked like if Hillary had won? What would you be writing about? I wonder. Oh, I, you know, I think about that a lot. Here's the thing. I thought before the election, I thought that I was going to be writing dad jokes about Tim Kaine. <laughs> you know, Hillary as Hermione stuff. (laughs) I do too. And I I operate best from a place of of joy and celebration. And so like I I tend to agree with with you that like this new dark period we're in isn't um, necessarily producing my best work. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad that people like it and but I I wanna say like this is not the best of me, you know, and that's that's frustrating to me. You know, there are times that I, I always try and punch up in my column if I'm making fun of something, you know, I'm trying to do it in a good-natured way. And, like, it's kind of impossible to do that with the administration. And so if I write about the administration, I'm like, look at these ghouls. These people are monsters. And I I feel like there is so much more room to write when you are writing from a place of exuberance and writing from a place of appreciation, even if you're, like, mocking it. I've written about Oprah's favorite things list in previous years. And I love Oprah. I love everything she does. I also think her favorite things list is wild and insane and full of things that I would never purchase and cannot afford. And I really enjoy writing about that. So I think if the if circumstances were different this week, I would have written about Oprah's favorite things and whatever Beyonce is doing and like Barack Obama on vacation. Okay, one one point of exuberance and appreciation, though. You have written about your admiration for Maxine Waters, and it led to mm-hmm. you getting a sit-down with Maxine Waters, which I think I was more excited about even than you were, because we were all like, <laughs> oh my God, he gets to meet her, he gets to meet her. What was that like? Oh, it was, it was phenomenal. And it was such a wild thing, because it started off with this, like, two second clip of her that I just thought was phenomenal. She, you know, talks about how James Comey has no credibility and then she like, you know, throws like throws her hands and like stomps off the 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 podium that she's speaking from. And I went wild and I wrote about that and it went it went viral and um she kept doing things that caught my attention and the public's attention. And 
so I kept writing about her. And finally, I guess after the third one, maybe it was after the second one, someone on her team reached out to me and they were like, you know, she really enjoys these. And it's so, it's sometimes I forget that like, that the people I write about are actually on the internet as well. Because like, you know, you, you have to caricature people a little bit. And to have her like chief of staff say like, she loves these, these little blogs you do you half the words in here she's never heard before because i'm like writing like you know i was shook and stuff and all these crazy things and so we started a correspondence and then she invited me down to dc in april of last year to be on stage with her while she was doing like a tax day rally you know for trump's tax returns and i was like this is wild i'm like a person who makes jokes on the internet and now i'm like give us your tax returns donald trump (laughs) from me and a congresswoman and not Um, just any congresswoman maxine reclaiming my time waters (laughs) exactly exactly so she kept doing stuff i kept writing about it and then finally my editor was like all right well let's kick this up a notch reach out and see if you can get some of her time in dc uh we'll do a big old spread and so and again, I forget that people exist in reality. I was like, I can't write to Maxine Waters. She's, just She's a like, concept. what's she gonna do? She's just <laughs> exactly. So I reached out, and of course, they were like, "Yes, please come down and talk." Okay. She like welcomed me and my husband to her office. You know, there's pictures of like great world leaders all around her office. You know, with her, so like her Nelson Mandela. You know her and uh, Hillary and Bill Clinton. I think I think there was maybe her and Harry, Harry Belafonte. I can't r- recall for sure. I was like, I was shook. And uh, she like offers us some eggnog because it was December, and I was like, I'm I'm drinking eggnog in Maxine Waters' office. What is this life? And it was just phenomenal. It was great. I I am not a reporter. I'm not a journalist. I'm not a trained journalist. Um, and so I one of the things I work really hard on is figure out how to ask good questions and listen well. And uh, that was very hard for me in this moment because I was, I was starstruck. Um, and she is, she's a force of nature and she's a wall of sound. It's amazing, you know. And she just got reelected with 75%. Right, right. Well, you know, you you say you're not a reporter or, you know, trained journalist, which is true. But I have to say, um, I think you're providing a really important service. You're keeping headlines in the news, but you're doing it in a way that is still still consumable by people who are exhausted from the fight. And I include myself in Mm -hmm. that. You know, it is. I know people, and you probably do as well, who are so despondent over the direction the country is going. They're so exhausted from fighting and fighting and fighting, and everything seems really dire and serious because it is dire and serious. But I don't know how, I don't know what the point is if we can't still find humor where it's available to us. I don't know how we go forward if we are only despondent. And so I really appreciate your writing in the sense that it makes me laugh, but it makes me think. And and you guys, if you are not subscribed to Eric's weekly newsletter, this is the thing I can't believe. So there's a weekly newsletter that summarizes all the five columns that you've written the, during the week. And the, the little intro bit that that you get in most newsletters where it's like, hi, here's what I wrote this week. Even that, what you write in that is 
crazy good and funny and meaningful. And, you know, I get choked up sometimes when I read it. So if you're not subscribing to the newsletter, Eric, how do, how do they sign up for that? Sure. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, it's So it's a, it's a tiny letter. Um, so you just go to the website, tinyletter.com slash our Eric, O-U-R-E-R-I-C. And that'll take you right to the sign-up page. Or if you're on Twitter, um, my handle is our Eric, and the link to sign up for the newsletter is my pin post, so you can get to it there. And I'll make sure to include a link straight to the newsletter sign-up in the show notes, so you can look at it there too. So, do you ever get so discouraged by the headlines that it is really hard to find the funny? And what do you do in that case? Oh, uh, constantly. I am basically like rolling from room to room, weeping all the time. It's it's really bad. It's really terrible. And the simple thing I try and do is just sort of unplug. And my therapist has been telling me for two years, like, work on mindfulness. And I was like, I don't have time. I don't have time to be mindful. Maybe tomorrow. But I do try to remind myself, sort of similar to what you said, like remind myself like what I'm fighting for. And it's both the things, the people in my life, you know, my my husband and my child-to-be and uh, my family, and also like the art that is out there. So I try to, I really try to read a lot. I'm very fortunate that like I'm on some publishers, you know, advanced lists. And so I get these very wonderful books that take me to different places and open up new worlds to me. And then when I when I'm able to sort of punch out, as it were, from work, I'm able to go into the plays that I'm working on about people who are struggling to connect with some part of their humanity or struggling to make sense of the world. Um, and the plays I write are typically comedies, and they're typically bigger hearted than than I think a lot of the work that you might uh, be seeing right now. And I do that on purpose because I'm I'm just trying to put something different into my own world and also into the, the larger world. I don't know. I also like, you know, eat a lot. So that's both good and bad. Who doesn't? My husband said to me the other day, he's like, I'm, I'm dying for some chocolate. And I said, let me get you some from my office. I work from a home office. He's like, you keep chocolate in your office? I'm like, doy, how long have you been married to me? Of course I keep chocolate in my office. God, how else do you get that's smart. Yeah, take that tip and run with it. So this actually is a good segue into the second part of what I wanted to talk to you about, which is your varied and vast creative outlets. So you, we, I mentioned you had a play come out this year in uh, Philadelphia, mm. Mrs. Harrison. Can you give a synopsis of that? It is. Uh, it's a two-person play. It's about two women who are in conflict over one story. It's uh, they encounter each other at their ten-year high school reunion. One is a a successful, semi-successful black playwright, and uh, the other is a, a struggling stand-up comedian. And the stand-up comedian, the white woman, alleges that the black woman uh, stole a story that happened to her and turned it into her successful play. It's about the play, the story, and the play itself inside of this play have to do with like uh, relationships between races in America and different experiences of privilege and otherness. Um, it's my attempt to have a conversation about like who is allowed to tell what story and and where our ideas about identity break down on the crux of like personal experience and, and like and, and personal. Uh, feelings. I, I will include links to all of Eric's plays in the show notes as well, so you can see. So, on, uh, on that topic of stories, you're also the host of the monthly Story Slam in Philadelphia. 
Mm-hmm. The moth, yep. And then just for good measure, you're writing a book of essays about hope. So tell us about your book and when we can expect to see that and what that's all about. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm very excited about this. Like, I'm like unabashedly excited. Me too. Uh, it's, so it's called Here For It. It's coming out in tentatively February of 2020 from Ballantine Books. And the we'll have a date nailed down in the next couple of weeks. And yeah, it's a series of uh, 16 or 17 personal essays that focus on, in a comedic way, focus on the intersection of various identities and positions of otherness in my own life. So, you know, I identify as Black, I identify as a queer person, I identify as a Christian, and I look at different spaces where those three identities came into conflict with each other or they overlap with each other, and also places where they came into conflict with the larger world. So, like, I tell one story about working in a restaurant um, after college and being a part of this the cool crowd in the restaurant, but also uh, some of the cool crowd were like very cool and also black and I mean not feeling quite black enough and also feeling like being gay negated my blackness. Just all the, the ridiculous ways that I try to negotiate mm-hmm. that um, and modulate that. Um, and that story ends with me at a party. I guess I'll just spoil the end of the, the essay. It's fine. We'll forget by February 2020. We're midlifers. <laughs> right. There's plenty of other news. Yeah. So I'm at this party and I'm just trying to be like a wallflower because everyone's just like dancing to like old old school hip hop and like just having a great time. And I'm like, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. It's an honor to be nominated. I don't <laughs> want to like embarrass myself by like attempting to dance or like showing myself to be like too gay. And so I like... I'm stepping further and further out of the circle and I'm like leaning up against the wall and I start to feel this like little pain on my shoulder. And I'm like, oh, I guess I must be standing too close to the candle. And I turn and like my uh, shirt is on fire. Um, So in an attempt to like keep myself from seeming too gay, I turned out I was flaming. I, I caught on fire. So it's stories like that. It's sort of like, it's a little bit Samantha Irby, a little bit David Rakoff, uh, a little bit David Sedaris, um, and then mostly just me. And all Eric Thomas. All Thank Eric you. Thomas. A lot, of, a lot of cultural references. It's going to be great. Well, let, let us know and I'll, you know, spread the word any way I can because uh, I'm excited for it too. I'm curious, how how do you think having a husband who's a Presbyterian minister informs your thinking about hope? And I'm really glad you brought up the idea of the intersectionality of Christianity and, and you know, the times in which we're living, because I'm also, I'm a part of an active church, Episcopal church here in the Northern, in Northern California, and it's very lefty and liberal and progressive, and it just pains me so hard, especially in a week like this, where we see what the which way the evangelical vote swung, and mm-hmm. it's hard to feel proud sometimes to to be Christian and to you know not, not be ashamed of that. And I wonder, you know, how how you think about that? Yeah, I think about it, you know, a lot. David, my husband, uh, you know, he's white and he grew up Presbyterian, and I grew up Baptist, and so we have very different experiences of of Christianity to start with, you know, very different understandings of the the Bible. And, my, you know, my father is sort of a, a, a lay biblical scholar, and, and a lot of times in our church growing up, he, you know, he, his understanding of what the scripture was telling us was different from what we were being taught, you know, less, less sort of fire and brimstone and less prejudiced uh, against other people. But to see the work that David does, David does so much work in community organizing and in 
creating a space that is safe for all people within the church walls um, and creating a space that is safe for doubt, Mm -hmm. which seems essential to faith practice and also seems to be like outlawed in so many evangelical spaces. It really does give me a renewed sense of hope just about what's possible. I, I am so confused about the way that so many evangelical white Christians, and I, and I think some evangelical black Christians also, uh, have distorted, I, I think, a message that is ultimately like pretty hope-filled and love-filled and turned it into a weapon. So I think if I wasn't, I, you know, and I was away from the church for a long time, and so I think if I wasn't married to a pastor, I, 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 I feel a lot of sympathy for people who are very turned off for, by the church, because I live with the, the struggle, the religious struggle every day. And even that, even still, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know about church. Well, I was thinking about this yesterday. I don't know why this came to me, but I thought, you know, I think God knew we were going to have really short attention spans. And that's why he boiled 10 commandments down to two. And really there's only <laughs> one, which is love your mm-hmm. neighbor as yourself. Like that's not hard. That's less than 140 characters. It's not that hard. And yet so many people distort. I mean, I, I, I don't understand how they can look at that commandment and think that they're living that way when they're throwing gay people out of their church or, you know, not welcoming the stranger, doing all this other stuff. I'm like, no, 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 it's not that hard. There was just the one rule. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's, and it's one of the things that's so fascinating to me is like people's supposed fear of sin trumps their uh, duty to love. And that's peculiar to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been told in plenty of church spaces that people didn't agree with gay people or didn't cared about gay people but didn't want them in the church and blah 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 all these things i you know what i they must be reading a different bible than i am and they must be getting like they must be on like the direct like high-speed internet to god because i've never gotten a message from god directly that was like here's a deal here's a tea girl you're going to hell so figure it out because that's not in the bible it's not actually no Well, you and I should fix religion. You, me, and David, we'll get right on it. That's, that'll yes. be next week. That's after your book gets turned in. All right. So one last question. What one piece of advice do you have for people younger than you, or do you wish you could go back and tell yourself? I look back at so many times when I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. And I look back, I you know, I think to myself right now, like, I don't really know what I'm doing. And it hasn't always turned out okay, but it always has turned out. And I think it is necessary to embrace the mystery, you know, um, to sort of find people who are good mentors and have good advice, but also to, to be very present with the idea that, like, you don't know what you're doing uh, always. And that that is not going to ruin you. So that's why I would tell my younger self. That's why I tell myself at breakfast this morning. That's what I'll tell myself tomorrow. Yeah, it gets easier over time because you just get more experience as you get older. Like, oh, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing again. And yet here, I'm still mm-hmm. here. Yeah, yeah. My mother likes to say to me, you know, especially in times that we've, when there's been tough times, uh, my mother has said to me, um, I'm sorry, I've never had a 21-year-old mm-hmm. son before. You know, when I was 21, you know, I'm the oldest. You know, she'll say, I've never been the age I am before. And that's really important for me to remember, like both as an individual and as somebody who's part of larger family systems, like I've never been in this space before. I've never been, you know, two years married before. I've never been uh, a parent before. Um, I'm not a parent now, but you know, 
one day I will look at some child in the face and say, like, I'm sorry. I don't know what I'm doing. My bad. <laughs> the universal chorus of every parent everywhere, every day. I'm never, <laughs> sorry, I'm new here. I don't know what's happening. Right, right. You'll have to report report that to management. Go over my head, please. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eric Thomas, thank you, thank you, thank you for being on the Midlife Mixtape Podcast. It was a thrill to talk with you. I'm so excited for all the various projects you're doing. And um, uh, everybody needs to go check out Eric's writing, his plays, and uh, we'll be pre-ordering the book as soon as that's available. So thank you again for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Nancy. It was wonderful. Well, there you go. That may be my favorite first concert story yet. That one may even knock Barbara Bradley Haggerty's Bon Jovi concert from episode 37 off the podium. There are gays at a Bette Midler show? Eric said he operates best from a place of joy and celebration, and I think we probably all do. I hope that at some point this week you have exuberance in your plans. The midterms are over, rain is finally in the forecast for California, and you know you have at least one meal coming up where you're going to have to unbutton your pants. It's all going to be okay. As always, I love hearing from you guys, so feel free to drop me a line at dj at midlifemixtape.com, or you can find me on social media at midlifemixtape. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and uh, it's always fun to run into you guys there. So let me ask you guys, have you ever fantasized about where you'd like to move? Maybe when you have an empty nest, or maybe you want to go help turn a red state purple? Hmm? If so, does my next episode speak to you? My guest will be Margaret Vandergriff, a moving consultant who helps her clients figure out where their happy place is. I'm going to see if she can help me manifest my dream of having a tiny home on wheels that I park for five months at a time in each of my daughter's driveways. They have both already threatened to call the police if I do this, and my husband says he's definitely not coming along. So Margaret has her work cut out for her. I can I can see that my plan still needs a little polishing. I mean, I get that it's not perfect yet, but I think episode 44 is really going to straighten things out. So join us. I hope you'll tune in for that conversation. And otherwise, I just want to say happy Thanksgiving. Take care, you guys. Embrace the mystery this week. I wanna be, I wanna be free by whatever